1: everyone and welcome to this special International Women's Day episode of LawPod, where we are celebrating women who are making positive change in the world through their work in law, human rights and social justice. My name is Rachel Killeen and I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Law at Queen's and I am joined today by our first guest in this series, Professor Anne-Marie McElinden, also from the School of Law. anne is a world-leading expert on the subject of sexual offending against children, her first book, The Sharing of Sexual Offenders, was awarded the British Society of Criminology Book Prize in 2008, and she has since published books on the topics of grooming and abuse by children and young people. So, Amory, I wonder, just to start us, if you would mind telling us just a little bit more about yourself and your career path, and maybe what brought you to academia in the first place.
0: Sure. Hi, Rachel, and thanks very much for asking me to be part of the podcast today. So I'd say first of all that I really came to academia probably by accident rather than design. It's not really something I set out or wanted to do. I began by doing a law degree at Queens, and at that stage I wanted to practice law. But I think through the study of the of the degree and the subject, I realised that probably wasn't for me. And I also did some work experience, and that really confirmed the fact that I didn't really want to be a solicitor or a barrister. So and I also knew at that stage that I liked more criminal justice criminology criminal law type subjects and from that I thought a natural progression to go on to that was to do a master's degree in criminology and criminal justice which I did at Queen's. Uh, As part of that I knew I started to like researching and writing so again a natural progression for that was a PhD and from that it just stemmed to that so from the PhD from teaching experience going to conference I began to think what an academic career is for me. So really it was kind of a process of evolution and and design and and narrowing of options, I suppose, rather than this is what I wanted to do from the outset. So when I was finishing my PhD, then I went to the University of Ulster for two years on a fixed-term contract. First a lectureship in a teaching-only contract, as it was then called, or uh, education. Then a lectureship in criminology. And then when posts came up at Queen's when I was finishing my PhD, I applied and I've been here ever since.
1: And... You know, it's it's a particularly sensitive and and emotionally difficult kind of topic that you're interested in. And I, I just wonder what what kind of pathway led you to particularly sexual offending against children through that progression that you you just outlined?
0: It's a very good question, Rachel, that's one I'm always asked, why sex offending, in particular sex offending against children. As we know, it's one of the most emotive and probably abhorrent topics that there is in terms of research. It's certainly not a dinner party conversation to be had. If you mention what you work on, sort of conversation closes down. But I think I got into it because, it's first of all, it's it's topical and interesting. I've always been interested more broadly in crime and criminality. When I was doing my undergraduate law dissertation, one of the big cases at the time was that of Julia Somerville, who was then a newsreader, and she took photographs of her, ch- of her child in the bath, which a, Bo- a Boots optician reported her to the police for because they thought it was potentially an indecent image. So from that case then, I did my undergraduate dissertation paper on child pornography legislation. As I say, leading on to the Masters in Queen's, the new legislation governing sex offender registration and community notification known as Megan's Law was just out in the US. That was the end of the 90s. So that that was a progression into that. Again, sort of broadly in the area of sex offences against children, it was a topical area. And then finally from my PhD, that stemmed on then to looking at those similar issues, pornography, management of sex offenders, registration in the context of Northern Ireland. So I think it's it stemmed out of a broader interest in crime and criminality. But why I went to that particular area is, I think, in a range of topical issues and cases that seem to be ongoing. And I think that's really still the case. There's Unfortunately, it's an area, there are many different areas to it, you know, historical abuse, online aspects. But unfortunately, it's a topic that's not going to, to go away. There's always something new to write about.
1: And I think what's really interesting about your work as well, and the story of how you got into it actually makes a lot of sense, is that you're not you not a kind of pearl-clutching, moralistic-type researcher. You know, you've know, you got this kind of critical lens that you bring to the offending, but also our responses to offending as a society and, and in terms of the legal and policy responses that we um, adopt in terms of this kind of offending. And I wonder what has been the most surprising finding that's come out of your research?
0: I think probably, Rachel, one of the most surprising findings was in relation to grooming. So you mentioned um, some of the, the books I've done. I did a book on grooming a number of years ago. And when I started that grooming pro- project, I obviously start like any project, looking at the literature. The literature, by some of the biggest names, actually, in, in the area of sex offending, academics and practitioners, The literature says that grooming is ubiquitous in sexual offending against children. In other words, you can't have abuse without grooming. But when I actually started to do the fieldwork, so it was multi-jurisdictional fieldwork in Scotland, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and England and Wales. When I looked at those uh, jurisdictions and interviewed professionals within that, actually the fieldwork turned my initial understanding of grooming on its head. So, in other words, what emerged was grooming, particularly within families, is much, much more complex and multi-layered so for instance if a person wants to groom a child who they already know they don't have to get over any hurdles because they're already there they already have a relationship so there may not in other words be grooming before the first offence so the fact that grooming operates in different contexts and different layers was very interesting to me and, and that really was against the the bulk of the existing literature at the time so that was the contribution that that work made but again, as I said there, it, it was surprising and that I didn't expect to find that. It went against probably decades of knowledge on this. So and that just shows you, I suppose, how, you know, what real sort of fieldwork can do. It can actually inform perceptions and inform literature and actually challenge paradigms.
1: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And, you know, you you mentioned fieldwork there. I mean, I can't even really, you know, I, I research genocides, but I, I can't really imagine the particular challenges that come from trying to conduct this kind of field work and I wonder if you could just reflect on that process of actually conducting this kind of work in this kind of topic.
0: Sure I think probably it's fair to say there are both challenges for the research in general doing that type of work particularly field work and then challenges for you personally as a researcher. So in relation to the first one, some of the the challenges and things to keep in mind, the difficulties you have to negotiate are things like obviously avoiding the re-traumatisation of victims or survivors. So this is particularly acute, for example, at the moment with all the different inquiries and, and forms of transitional justice going on in relation to historical institutional abuse survivors. You know, there's a risk with child abuse victims or, or HIA victims, there's a risk that you can sort of over-research populations and ask similar questions, and, and that risks re, re, re-traumatising victims. So you need to think, can you do this research another way without actually looking at victims or survivors? Can you look at professional viewpoints, for example? I think another difficulty generally in terms of the research you've mentioned there, and and thank you for that, that I sort of, I treat it, I don't go down the moral sensationalism route. It's, it's quite critical and and it's detached, but I hope sensitive approach to the work. It's difficult to, to trade that line because, you know, it is an emotive and sensitive topic. You have to try and write in a neutral way to avoid sensationalist language, even though you know it, it's an issue that causes concern and an impact indeed on, on many people. So so that's a difficulty in terms also of how you might engage with with um, maybe public audiences, what media outlets outlets you might use sort of following on from that in terms of you know the difficulties for the researchers themselves again just to do with that traumatic subject matter Uh, i think for example i remember once when i was doing the fieldwork for the grooming book in birmingham and coming out of a police station in birmingham after doing an interview with a couple of police officers now again i wasn't actually sitting there listening to the perspectives of survivors and and first-hand accounts this was through the prism Or the eyes of of police officers but what they were relaying to me in terms of the dynamics of offending within family situations so fathers grooming children and maybe you know steps and stairs of children within a family at the same time is absolutely horrific stuff so so that's a real difficulty in this area i think it's not all always acknowledged and i think to try and you know mitigate against that it does impact and it's important to debrief and and you know have self-care and protect yourself, whatever way that works for you, your hobbies or talking to others, and, and certainly those particular difficulties I have found more acute as I've had children, because obviously you can relate and you think, you know, what if this were my children? So I think there's a balance to be had there. You, you want to try and be sensitive to the work, but at the same time not overly desensitized, that you don't care enough about the issues you're dealing with. So, so, so that's a difficulty there, I think, because of the emotive nature of the subject.
1: Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned having children there and, you know, none of us can ever be truly objective. We always just carry our identities around with us. Did you notice a kind of shift in the way you were thinking about your work once once you became a parent yourself?
0: Not as such, Rachel, in terms of the approach I generally took, but I, I think just what I've mentioned there, I think reading cases just hit much closer to home in terms of, you know, yes, on the one hand, it's good to be detached, but it, it makes you realise these are real people, real families, real children. So I think just the immediacy, the importance of the work and the potential impact and the care that needs to be taken here sort of drives home to you more.
1: Yeah, that's that's an important point, actually. Thank you. And it, it leads me to what I actually wanted to talk about next, which is, you know, this is a really crucial area of work. It needs urgent attention and You've been good at engaging with policy and seeing your work as something that can make an impact in the real world as well as in academia. So I wondered whether you might be able to reflect a little bit on that, um, because you know, one of the themes of this podcast is people working to bring about positive change. And that's maybe not something we always associate with with academics, or maybe not, you know, what a member of public, the public would associate with academics. So I wonder if you could just reflect on how academics can use their work to bring about positive change in in relation to social justice issues.
0: Well, I think there are lots of, of possibilities here, Rachel. I mean, I know it's, it's, it's the bywords of, of universities now in terms of engaged research, it's, it's dissemination and, and leading to impact and, and all of that. But But it's also very worthwhile from a personal perspective outside the institutional sort of imperatives. And there are lots of possibilities here. So, you know, the, the possibilities stem from, I think, building connections and networks with people. And you really can do that, for example, from the very start of your research by trying to build in public engagement and dissemination from from the outset of your work. But what that really means then is, you know, to try and think about the research design from the very start conceptualization of the research in terms of who will actually be the professionals or end users or beneficiaries of this. And that might mean, for example, showing your research instrument to professionals to make sure you have the right language that's used. So I know in my own work, for example, you know, it's we're now moving to a situation where the terminology of sex offender isn't even acceptable because it's about labelling. It's about so instead you, you try and use person first language such as individuals convicted of sexual offending. Now some people might think that's too politically correct, but I suppose it's just about being sensitive, having the right language and framework. And I think that public engagement can help that. And and that's how you, you think you get your work to have one of the most positive influences is thinking about those kind of end goals from the start of the research. I think other ways to do it include things like trying to attend professional conferences as well as academic conferences, trying to write for a range of audiences. So while we all have pressures as academics to do your all singing, all dancing, big journal articles or or, or big books. I think it's important to try and write for a range of audiences, whether that means for professional journals, for newspapers, uh, doing things like blogs, conversation pieces, the the QPOL, the Queen's Policy Series. I think in some ways the opportunities to try and affect social justice and change and, and bring about positive impact from your work gets easier as you Get further established in your career because it stands to sense as you become more well known, people ask you to do more things. But there are some very positive examples of our early career researchers doing this as well. So I think we can all do it. The other thing I would say is that it's very much a two way process. So it's not just about us giving and disseminating and sharing our knowledge with professionals or communities. We can also learn from that the other way around and certainly I my own research has been very much informed by networking with professionals and, and through different pieces of work I've done field work and, and consultancy for example I've built up a good range of contacts so that two-way process is important and just finally I suppose on the limitations of this again I'll go back to what I said about the media and, and the subject matter if you're working in a particularly sensitive area of work like sex offending you need to choose your dissemination outlets very very carefully so, you know, you need to think carefully before you go on radio or certain television programs. And again, to make sure, you know, you keep your integrity and, and handle the area with, with sensitivity because, for example, a survivor could be listening to you. So again, it's about that sort of balance in terms of sensitivity to the work, even if you're doing outreach or, or trying to affect change.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I can see how that becomes all the more important in the kind of areas that you work in. Um, So you've done a couple of quite high profile, um, I suppose, kind of uh, engagement with with impact-driven activities. And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about them, if that's possible. So you have engaged in external consultancy for uh, the Northern Ireland office uh, on issues around public attitudes to sexual offending and employment opportunities for sexual offenders. I wonder, did that experience reflect some of those possibilities and limitations that you were just highlighting for us?
0: Yes, so so both of those projects, Rachel, were, as you've mentioned, in conjunction with the Northern Ireland Office, now the Department of Justice, and the Public Protection Arrangements Northern Ireland, which is our multi-agency framework, so police, probation, et cetera, for managing and and risk assessing sex offenders. So they asked me to do both of those projects. In, In the first case, the Public Attitude Study, there were, as an external company actually did the public survey with a thousand members of the Northern Ireland public, I actually analysed the data and wrote up the report based on the literature. And the second one, as you've mentioned, was on employment opportunities. I did that one from scratch, sort of a critical literature review, looking at comparative research, what other jurisdictions were doing in terms of employment opportunities or barriers to reintegration and employment for sex offenders. And both of those those I, I find very positive. And from those, I've built trust and relationships with key people, both within the statutory sector and voluntary sector. So both were very worthwhile. Obviously there's a level of trust there that has to go on. They don't know you at the start. They know you by reputation, so they're trusting that you will do a good job and handle the data, you know, sensitively and, and confidentially and all of that. But I, I find that very, very positive, and other things uh, have arisen from that because, one, you know, again, the snowballing thing and the idea of when you become more established, people ask you to do things. Other things have flown uh, from those two opportunities, like keynotes and things. The other one I, I did more recently was the... Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse in Australia, and that was in March 2017. So the Royal Commission asked me initially to review a research report of theirs on grooming, which I did. Then they asked me to give some evidence as part of their panel hearings on grooming and entrapment. So I prepared notes for commission lawyers on the basics of grooming, and then I gave live evidence. So that was very worthwhile as well, time consuming, but worthwhile. That has actually led to the basis of one of our REF impact case studies for this year. So what I would say is in terms of reflecting on that, if you get the opportunity, do it. I think the university, most universities are the same, allow so many days consultancy per year. It is is time consuming, but worthwhile in terms of allowing you to build up a network of professional contacts. But on the downside, As I say, apart from the time consuming being able to actually do the work, which leads to impact, it's also time consuming in terms of following up and kind of keep track of it. So, for example, for the Ref Impact case study, quite a lot of work had to go into tracking the media and tracking what different organisations have done with your research. So it's definitely something to think about. It's an avenue into public engagement and dissemination and it can broaden your professional context, as I've said.
1: And it sounds like in those incidences, it was quite a positive experience in terms of your ability to influence change. Have you ever? Do you experience pushback? You know, in light of the kind of critical and nuanced perspective you take on what, as you said, is quite an alarming topic, or have you found it actually in practice? Your experiences are are more positive.
0: I think probably I've been very lucky, Rachel. I've never actually had any pushback actually once only, and that was as a PhD student, which was unfortunate because that's the stage where you need support and are maybe not as com- confident in, in, in taking pushback or, or negative criticism. That that was the case where I was at a conference as a PhD student speaking about using restorative justice to combat domestic violence or forms of sexualized and gendered violence and, and there was a reaction from a judge in the audience who basically said you know this is just crazy stuff trying to use this all the traditional arguments about restorative justice the arguments against it that you know it it, it disempowers victims it's re-traumatization there's no accountability of perpetrators all of that so I was lucky that that's the only experience that 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 I've had even though some of the work I've done like the first book you've mentioned, The Shaming of Sex Offenders Advocated for Restorative Justice for Offenders. That's a hard message for communities to hear, perhaps even a a hard message for some survivors to hear if they want prosecution or or punishment. But I think overall I've been lucky and I hope that I've handled the work sensitively and made the arguments reasonably and evidence-based that people have accepted that.
1: Yeah, and, you know, that's that's also just a tribute to the kind of professionalism and sensitivity that you bring to the topic, I'm sure, as well. Um, you know, I'm maybe, so part of this, pod, most of this podcast is about, you know, your work and how you've brought about change and all that kind of thing. But it's also, you know, this is about International Women's Day and, and the role of women in different um, areas of work and women who are bringing about change and I don't want to fall into that kind of cliche, like what do you think as a woman? But I wonder, as you've progressed through your career, what your thoughts are in terms of the barriers that remain for women in academia, if there if there are still barriers and and what could be improved in that regard.
0: I guess that's that's, that's the important question, Rachel. I think it's obviously, as you've said, one of the reasons why we're here today. I've been in academia about 20 years and, and I think it's fair to say things definitely have improved. So we have things like obviously the SWAN agenda, our bronze award within the school and, you know, the particular development of things like family friendly policies, core working hours, all of that. We also have more broadly in the university, the Queen's Gender Initiative. So I think all of those and an awareness of gender has definitely helped. In other words, it's something that it's okay to talk about and say, this affects me differently, or I have a possible issue with this, that it's acceptable to do that. So, for example, I remember at the very start of my career as a lecturer, I just joined Queen's. And I had a particular issue with, with well, I wasn't the only one, but I was the only one that voiced it, with teaching in the evenings. You know, master's classes at that stage were half five to half eight. And I completely understand why they were. It was to p- facilitate part-time students who were working, with, which is fair enough on one level. But I I, I was proud of myself in, in the sense that I, I stood up as a, as a female lecturer and said, this is not really great in terms of asking people to teach all day. I then had to get to Newry with children, all of that. So other people followed in behind and that policy was actually changed. So I think at that time I was maybe afraid to say it, but did say it. Can we look at this please? Is it possible to, to, to move this? But I think it's more acceptable to say that now. So in terms of barriers, I think one of the stemming from that, probably a barrier that still exists for women is confidence. And this has not been gendered in any way, but I know from my experience of of promotion panels and Grant applications and mentoring people that that sometimes, and not to be gendered or generous, but sometimes women can have less confidence than their male counterparts in terms of going for things. So applying for promotion when you think you're ready, rather than waiting, for example, till you've ticked every single box on the form, or you know having the confidence to go for a bigger grant. I think we we could do more around that, and I th- I think one of the answers to that is is more of this kind of. More of a kind of more formalised lean in culture, as they say, a bit more tailored mentoring. Mentoring is something I've been very interested in, and I'm I'm trying to develop a scheme at the moment with Professor Louise Mander, the current Swan champion. I think mentoring is the key here to listen to other people's other women's experiences and to get advice. Now, not everybody. I think the difficulty is not everybody is supportive most people are and I think we work in a supportive law school academia is very competitive as well which I think makes it difficult so not everybody will be on your side in terms of saying yes this is the best for you but there are plenty of people willing to help so I think in terms of improving make use of your supportive contacts those who are willing to help you I think my, for example my dad used to say I don't know if this is actually true or not but my dad used to say and I've heard other people actually say this too—that you have to be twice as good as a man to succeed. I don't know if that's actually the case. I think it comes down again, as I said a moment ago, about confidence. That have confidence in your own abilities, seek support, and, and go for things at the right time. Don't wait.
1: Yeah, I mean that that rings very true to me. In times where I'm feeling insecure, I always kind of repeat to myself. Um, that you should embody the confidence of a white man <laughs> you know absolutely uh, and I think yeah. that, that remains true to some extent yeah. I, I, I liked what you were saying there about you know it's also about listening to other women's experiences and their advice and I suppose just to kind of finish off our conversation then it might be nice if you could share any you've already been quite generous in sharing advice and tips and things but do you have any Final pieces of advice for perhaps a young woman who's considering an academic career.
0: Sure. Well, I think on the first thing to say, Rachel, is it, it's it's a very it's hard work. It's it's not sociable hours sometimes. Sometimes you can, you know, change your day around if you if you have other things on and personal commitments or family commitments on. But quite often it's long hours. If you've deadlines or you've marking or whatever research deadlines or marking, it can be quite long hours. But I think it's a very, very enjoyable and and worthwhile career. I think what I would say is that, you know, again, take the advice and support. I think first and foremost, though, is to say that I always believe, and I've always worked this way myself, that I think the ultimate responsibility for your career is you. No one's going to hand it to you on a plate, but I think there's plenty of people who will help and support you, you know, read your work and, and mentor and provide advice about promotion. When's the time to go and all of that? So do reach out and, and take that advice and support. I think for anybody starting off or thinking about it, I think, you know, make the most of those opportunities. I think networking is important. I think we're you know, at a stage in, in universities and academic life where interdisciplinarity is becoming increasingly important. So we, we can no longer just work siloed and, and work on our own within the school. It's important to work and look at what others are doing outside the school, across the university and indeed outside the university. I think early in your career, it's important to go to conferences. I've mentioned already the professional as well as academic conferences. I know some of the people I met at the British Society of Criminology conference, for example, as a PhD student, I've kept in contact with. They're they're both now professors. I think also another bit of advice is, you know, to try and get a balance, a balance in a number of senses, balance in terms of, you know, actually having a life you could spend your life working at evenings and weekends just to be on top of things, to get your research done. Have a balance in terms of it's, it's, it's your job. It should just be your job. It's, it's not your life, even though as much as I enjoy it. I think also it's trying to get a balance as well in terms of teaching and research. So at times, we we'll, you know you might have a heavier teaching load, certainly when you're starting off. You, you've You have more teaching in terms of prep to do if you're new to a subject area. But it's important to find that time for writing. And that's probably one of the key things is, is to work out. And you, it, it comes after a while to work out what is right for you in terms of getting that time for writing. I used to get advice from people, senior people, when I started off to say, you know, you must write every day. Personally, I can't work like that. I need a block of time to get in at least an afternoon. I can't work an hour here, an hour there. But find a time that's right for you. But you must have a balance with teaching and research and keep the writing going. Cause I think it's like anything, it's a skill. You have to practice it. So I think in a nutshell it's 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 hard work, but I would say go for it. It's 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 a good job. It's a very enjoyable job and no two days are the same.
1: Thank you, Anne-Marie and I have to say um even though I'm not I guess emerging anymore, I find that reminder of those kinds of pieces of advice really helpful as I was listening to you. So Thank you very much. And thank you so much for giving us your time. I really appreciate you coming and talking to LawPod. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Rachel, for asking me. I was was really happy to do it and be asked. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. So you have been listening to LawPod, which is an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff here at Queen's University, Belfast. This episode was produced by Dr. Lauren Dempster. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, and we are funded by Queen's University Law School. Many thanks again to Professor Anne-Marie McElwinden for joining us for this International Women's Day special. Please follow us. Uh, We're on Twitter at QUB LawPod, and for more information for our episodes, you can visit our website, lawpod.org. We'll have show notes where you can learn more information about the topics covered today and you can find us on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I am Rachel Colleen and this was LawPod.